Hi, we're Phil and Jen. Welcome to our podcast. And this is <laughs> the fourth season. You just jumped right in there. I did. I started it right <laughs> off. Came out hot. Apparently we're starting. It's called This New Space. And this is the 10th episode. And it is a conversation with Alexander Shia. And um, he created the Quadratos, um, I want to say model, but that's not the right word. The, the Framework. The framework of looking at the four Gospels as part of the four-part transformational journey that's true of all great wisdom traditions. Um, fascinating conversation in which he speaks into what is happening in our time and how it is actually spoken about through the different Gospels, and then also what are the, the spiritual practices to lean into right now in our day, in our life, in our world that um, transforms us and helps us get through these uncertain times into the next of whatever is coming. It was so powerful, and I'm really excited for you to hear uh, what Alexander had to say. I love this man. Before we get into that, though, a couple things. Expansion Lab. We are doing uh, what we're calling the Expansion Lab, which is um, like a mini breathwork, cold therapy, uh, heat combination, like a contrast, heat, ice, breathwork workshop. It'll be an hour, lunchtime, and uh, the idea is to connect you to the beat of your life. And um, it's going to be one hour next week, July 20th, if you're listening to this now. Actually, it would be this week because I'm recording it the week before. This Wednesday from 1230 to 130, we've got only a couple of spots left for that. If you want to come, if you want to be part, if you want to go through some breath work, some embodiment exercises, and then experience the cold and the heat um, in a sort of round robin with a few other people, uh, we'd love for you to join us. You can um, email us at hello at philandjinwood.com to reserve a spot, and we'd love to have you join us for that. And also, coming up in July, we have another meetup. We had our first one in July, or sorry, June, June and it was, oh, it was powerful. It's just Felt like a really sacred space. It feels sacred. And so meetups are just basically a safe space to come with your questions, with your thoughts, with your doubts, with with your um, longings, and also just a place to set down the heaviness of the world. We, we're going to have tacos and margaritas and just talk about your faith and talk about life. And talk about expanding faith. To come alongside other people who are on a journey of expanding in their faith. And if... You uh, find yourself listening to this podcast and you're finding yourself lining up with some of the things that Alexander is talking about. And you'll see in these first two quadrados, this space, these meetups are for you because these are the kind of things we're talking about. So you can go to the website for more info on that at philandjenwood.com and to let us know how many tacos you want if you're coming, (laughs) most importantly. Some people leave more tacos than other people. Okay. (laughs) So Alexander Shia. Just a, um, a quick introduction of Alexander because we jumped straight into the conversation. And so uh, to frame up who he is a little bit, if you don't know him and his work, um, Alexander attended the University of Notre Dame and received a degree in cultural anthropology. Then he had a brief time in seminary, followed by a master's in counseling education, a master's in religious education and a graduate certificate in pastoral psychotherapy, and then a PhD in clinical psychology. So this man is highly educated in multiple fields, um, 
His extensive psychological training across many modalities finally led him to Switzerland, where he studied with the Jungian um, analyst and founder of Sandplay Psychotherapy, Dora Maria Kolf. And Alexander John became the first U.S. man admitted to the International Society for Sandplay Therapy. He continues to serve as a senior certified teaching member of that organization. After that, he came back to the United States and he went through years of private practice, teaching, parish, and retreat ministry, uh, along with further study. And then he integrated his lifelong practice of prayer with many cross disciplines of which he'd given his life to anthropology, psychology, spirituality, and ritual work that shaped him into a very, very unique thought leader and a very widely sought after consultant and trainer and keynote speaker. And then he also became an author with um, eight books and more in the works. Um, and he also uh, is the founder of Quadratus, which is um, what we talked about in the beginning. It's uh, a framework for understanding the four gospels as four parts of the transformational journey that are a part of every great wisdom tradition and every transformational journey. And it is a profound uh, framework and lens to look at the scripture through. He lives in the high Rocky Mountains in northern New Mexico, as well as the wild Atlantic coast of northwest Spain, which is where we were able to catch up with him as he joined us in his evening and our morning. So here is Alexander Shia. We're so glad that you... Talk, talk you joined us. Um, yeah, we'll okay, jump right in. Do you know that we I, met? I, I looked at your website a little bit. Okay. 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 Did, did, I, did I meet you at Rob's house? We did. I met you at Rob's. I don't know. I was yeah. trying to remember what year that was. Jen and I were talking about it. it must have been yeah, 2016. 20, well, maybe later. Yeah, probably. I don't remember. 16 or 16 or 17. Maybe 17. I gave you a ride home or to wherever it wasn't your yep. home, but wherever yep. you were staying. Yep. Yeah, that was really yeah. cool. That was the first time I had been exposed to your work, actually. Was in the house listening to you and Rob talk about it there in the kitchen. <laughs> Remember when he moved into the kitchen because it was so hot? Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. We sat at the kitchen table. It was awesome. Yeah. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about your work or even just a little bit about you um, for people who don't know you? and. Um. So I, I, uh, I was born in the United States, uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, but my family, including my parents, came from Lebanon. Uh, my, my parents were literally almost infants at that point. Wow. But uh, I grew up in a, a Lebanese village that was in the middle of the industrial south of the United States. And so I'm one of those bridge people, which mm. means uh, because of my grandparents and because of being in this Lebanese village, um, I learned the old ways. Mm. Yeah. But then I was in the United States and I went to Notre Dame. And so I had to make my way into Western industrial concept in life. Wow. wow. But that, that bridge from the Middle East to Western industrial or postmodern life uh, is sort of, I, I sort of had to make the, the journey opposite from most people. Mm. Most people have like grown up in, in industrial or postmodern and are making right. their way back to something that's more embodied. Right. Right. Yeah. That's what we're doing. yeah. Where, whereas I started <laughs> in an embodied world that was not very conceptual. Wow. So the Christian church that I went to was all about smells and bells. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting. To use that, yeah, that yeah, imagery. Yeah. It was all about yeah. myst- mystery. It wasn't. It wasn't about long sermons and and concepts. It was about a, a sensuous feeling of God. Mm. Um, and so then I, I went to Notre Dame and had to learn philosophical concept. But uh, in that Lebanese community in Birmingham, in very difficult days of the 1950s, where we were. Uh, really hounded by the KKK. Uh, the gift of that was it kept me in the tradition in a way that if we had been able to assimilate more easily, I probably wouldn't know it. Wow. But uh, uh, I, I tell the story in the opening of my book that in, I think it was 1957, I stood outside of my, my grandmother's house, my mother's mother's house, after it had been firebombed by what we believed to be the KKK. Wow. And um, she lost everything. She mm. lost uh, all the mementos, uh, everything that she had brought from Lebanon. Uh, her husband had just recently passed away. And her house was the place that we all gathered. It was really the soul of the family. Oh, man. Devastating. So, so five days later, we were at my aunt and uncle's house, but my grandmother was still there and we were all together as we always were every Sunday. Mm. Uh, And she led us in grace before dinner as she always did. And then you waited for her to pick up your fork. You didn't pick up your fork, she picked up hers. Wow. Wow. And, And she looked around the room that day and I was at the kids' table way far, mm. far away from yeah. her. But she looked around the room, and she sort of caught each one of our eyes. And then very quietly and insistently, she said, no hate, no hate, no hate. Wow. Incredible. And in that, in, in, I wanted to know how she could do that. What was her source? Yeah. How could she, who had just lost pretty much everything of value uh, in some ways, her only concern was about helping the family move forward. And I tell the story about how I, I grew up on her lap. She couldn't read or write. She couldn't read or write Arabic or English. Hmm. Um, she, she didn't know fairy tales or, or English literature, but she chanted the gospels to me and a mixture of Arabic and Aramaic, which she had memorized because this is the old way in the Middle East, is that if something is sacred, it's chant and it's memorized chant. And I remember as a small child sitting on her lap and feeling the chant of the gospel text and saying, "There's, there's a presence here in the way that a child can can know that there yeah. was, I was riveted by something that was not just cognitive. Mm. And so when in that awful moment, when the house burned and she lost everything that she physically owned, it was like her faith went into me in a way. It's like, I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to be that. Mm. Yeah. And all of those years of hearing the gospels chanted in that moment became true because of who she was. How so old were you then? I go off to, I was seven years old. Wow. 
between between six and seven. Such a formative time, and you know, what? Wow. Talk about embodiment. To be experiencing that at such a young age, that's that had to be yeah. somewhat traumatic too. Totally traumatic, because uh, I will tell you that the the conversations in my household that week were not no hate. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. There, I can't there, imagine. There, there was a lot. There was a lot of of anger and anxiety. And, mm. Uh, I mean, these were really difficult days in Birmingham, and I, I kind of thought that we weren't going to see days like that again, but it may not be so true. Right. Uh, so a- after this moment, and I was to be the priest in the family line, I had been given that responsibility about two minutes after I was born, and my father gave me the name Alexander, which is in our family line the name that's given to the next priest. Because in the old tradition, oh, man. in the villages in Lebanon, your family, there's a particular family that produces the priest. And that was my family line. So interesting. So when I was given the name Alexander, I was I was ordained at that moment to become a priest. So I went to Notre Dame and I'm so grateful that I did, but it was a enormous shock to go from this Lebanese village to this very sophisticated academic school and to learn that I was that I had a lot of innate intelligence but boy I wasn't that smart (laughs) and I I was I was swimming for my life because I wasn't speaking the language Mm. and I and I was taking all this theology because I was getting ready for seminary and I was learning all these beautiful concepts but none of it spoke to my heart mm. in the way that my grandmother had. Wow. There was a there was a presence that to me was more important than all these concepts. Anyway, that started me on a journey. I wanted to find a way, if I could, to have the gospel have that rooted presence that still held all that beautiful intellectual concept that I learned in yeah. college. Yeah. But but that co- those intellectual concepts didn't lead me to a place of no hate uh, when my when my home burned out. And so I I wanted my work to be a work that was about heart and devotion. Yeah as well as intellectual concept. And I, I didn't want a Christianity that asked me to leave one of those at the door. Oh, I love that. Uh, I, I wanted both sides to be welcome. Yeah. It's so like, that, the, oh, sorry. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the journey. I mean, I went to seminary um, and, and left very shortly. I was there just about a half year because at Notre Dame, I had discovered some really incredible, exciting things like the work of Joseph Campbell in mythology, and, uh, the work of C.G. Young and, and, uh, and one's inner life, etc. And I got to seminary and it was like, I was bored. It was like, here's, the, here's the question. Here's the answer. The answer. Make sure you dot the I. Mm. Right. Yeah. Here's how it and, all works. Here's the box. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas Notre Dame had been about self-discovery and searching and questioning mm. and trying all sorts of new things out. Anyway, and you studied anthropology. Uh, Is that right? I was an anthropology major. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Which was my my area of expertise were rites of initiation. So, interestingly, though, a lot of people 
who go away to college and study anthropology, it, it takes apart their faith and it blows open their preconceived boxes and they, it like kills it for them. I, I remember an anthropology right. professor whose like goal was to kill it for people. She had some strange agenda of trying to take people apart, but for you, it, it didn't seem to do that. Well, no, because anthropology uh, gave me a language for what I think of as the indigenous life I had lived in the Lebanese mm. village. Yeah. It, it gave me a way to value it and to understand it. And so it helped me cross over to Western philosophical concepts, hmm. which were, uh, which was like landing on Mars or some new galaxy <laughs> that we're seeing um, yeah. on the screen these days. I was like, I didn't know how that world worked at all. Yeah, it's very different. So it was really funny that anthropology was the at-home place that gave me enough security to, to, to go explore something that was weird. Huh. Yeah, that's really uh, cool. I love that you didn't leave behind, that you didn't just move over, though, to this kind of head knowledge, intellectualism, and leave behind the heart of it all. You were like, I'm going to figure out how to marry these. I, I've got to bring it with me. Beautiful. I, I, and I don't know what why that is. I mean, it just a uh, strange kid from Alabama. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I've always been somebody who wanted to bring things together rather than separate them out. Mm. So yeah. um, resonate I don't know with where that. I got that from. <laughs> I don't think it's a problem. I think it's a gift, especially <laughs> in our day and age, that is desperately trying to split things apart. Well, it's like I had two brilliant, truly brilliant roommates in college. Um, and those were the days of, of the philosophy that God is dead. And they were having these incredible philosophical conversations at nighttime about <laughs> does God exist or not exist? And for me, God was the era. I mean, God was an experience. I was like, yeah. I was rooted. Yeah. I, I couldn't think about does God exist any more than a fish can think about whether they're in water. Yeah. Right? It just... Mm. It, anyway so yeah it's it's experiential for you so it's not something to it it's not like a debate to be discussed it it's just part of your being yeah yeah for me or at least for me it feels that way experience yeah then i could go and 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 have fun with the philosophy yeah absolutely but, but the experience the experience was my at-home place mm. so then how did you how did you kind of learn well maybe you could start with what is quadratos and then how did you learn about that and kind of you know <laughs> all right so in theology at notre dame this is like so wild to me the theology department at notre dame brought joseph campbell to campus every springtime joseph campbell the american mythologist yeah, yeah. oh yeah like the script writer for star wars and right and, the Matrix yep. and all these but so he came to to teach in theology to advanced students uh, every springtime and taught scripture as great myth. And he blew my mind. And mm. I, I he, he, he really scrambled everything. I bet. In a, in a very confusing way. Oh, that, that must but have I, been. I was drawn, I was drawn, there, I knew there was something here. I was so excited by it, but I didn't understand it. Mm. Um, but he kept coming back in those days to teaching that all great universal stories of transformation the world over, whether it's era or time, any, were always told in four parts. And he kept coming back to this theme about all great stories of transformation have four parts to them. Mm. 
And I was, it was, I was taking this class with him at the same moment in my theology class, we were learning that the early church, first centuries of Christianity, read the four gospels in a sequence. Mm. And the sequence is different from the sequence in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. And so I'm sitting there with these two pieces of information and I'm like, is there some way that this sequence that the early Christians knew about is matches or fits with what Campbell is talking about that all great stories of transformation are told in four parts? Is there a way possibly that the four gospels are the four parts of the story of transformation? Hmm. So, so I, I chewed on this for, for decades, really like almost 30 years. Wow. And I kept, and I, I feel like I was like um, uh, Cinderella in the shoe trying to, to, to push the, the foot in. Mm-hmm. Right. And, yeah. and, and then I went back away and was like, now, if this is going to work, it's, it's got to it's gotta easily fall together. It's like, mm-hmm. if, I'm, if I'm trying to shape this thing, I don't know whether this is really true or not. Mm-hmm. So finally, after years and years and years of all this work in psychology, reading the spiritual classics, studying scripture, studying the gospel, studying early Christian church. Um, I came upon the work of the Reverend Robert Griffith Jones in the year 2000. And he's uh, an Anglican priest, theologian in London. And he wrote a book called The Four Witnesses. Mm. And in this book, he's talking about the names of Jesus in a beautiful Christological way, complex uh, theology. And I had this night when I couldn't sleep and I picked up his book, which a friend had just given me. I thought, this'll do it. (laughs) (laughs) And I just got a few pages into this book and and literally the hair on the back of my neck stood up because here, here was the final key. What he did was, he summarized all the research about the community at the point that the gospel was composed or revealed to them. And I had never seen this anywhere else, anyone else. I mean, any other Bible, any other book in the Bible, we want to know who was this written to? What, what were they dealing with? And yet somehow we had stopped asking that question about the four gospel texts. Well, Mm. he, wrote the story of the community and what they spiritually were wrestling with. And then he explained the name of Jesus from the text in terms of that community's dilemma. Hmm. Well, I saw that and more. There was Campbell because each of the four communities was wrestling with one part of the four point journey of of transformation. And what I knew is from my early church history that the sequence, which is not the Bible sequence, it's the the sequence was Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke. And when I looked at Robin Griffith Jones's research and I rearranged the texts and the stories of the communities in the ancient sequence, there it was. Wow. Wow. And I picked picked up and read the four Gospels. I stayed up three days and three nights. And I read the four Gospels. So it didn't put you to bed. 
Yeah. <laughs> like I had never, like I had never uh, seen these words fresh. before. Yeah. Cause I, I suddenly realized that this is not just the story of Jesus, but each gospel is the story of Jesus teaching us about a spiritual practice. And that practice is a response to one of the, one of life's great questions. So Incredible. Matthew in my way of understanding is written to the question of how do we face change? Mm. A very pressing question today. And right. <laughs> Mark is written to the question about how we endure great trials and obstacles. And John is written to the question of uh, uh, new vision and, and greater relationship, new vitality. And Luke is written to the question of how do we take uh, this newness and make it serve? How do, how do we take the vision that we get in John and put it on the road right. so that we actually build something that we're not just looking at the beatific vision, but it actually helps us create a new life for ourselves and for others. Mm. And so there it was. And, and, and so I knew that I, I wanted a name for my work, which was going to have something to do with four. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's where the quad comes from. And the Ratos was just, uh, I was just sounding it out. I just wanted something that felt like I was moving along. Yeah. And then the huge shock was I went to the US government to get this name copyrighted. Mm. And they came back and they said, well, uh, you have to, you, you have to swear that you don't know uh, the second century Christian author by the name of Quadratus. Oh, Q-U-A-D-R-A-T-U-S. <laughs> wow. Who wrote in defense of foreignness. Oh. Interesting. Yeah. yeah anyway. Yeah. So that is some lawyer did is... some hard work and came back at you so <laughs> yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You, you, you think you're creating something new and it's right. like actually not at all. Yeah. Wow. Oh man, how exciting was that moment though when you put it all together? I mean, that had to be just yeah. incredible. And I love that you just kept so the, pursuing that curiosity, you know, like even though you didn't have it all fitting in the shoe, as you say, perfectly, you just kept waiting for that to Well, I, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm like a dog on a bone. It's like I chew and chew and chew and chew and chew. <laughs> um, uh, Persistence is probably the upside, and stubbornness is the downside. <laughs> but uh, but one of the one of the key pieces that most of our scholars have forgotten is that Passover is was an anchor part of the Christian tradition as we followed our mother tradition for so long. And Passover is built around four questions, mm. and that. Passover, the, the night of Passover for our Jewish mother was not just a recitation of history. It was an examination of one's uh, lived life yeah. through the four questions of Passover. Hmm. So in the second century, when Irenaeus says the gospel must have four accounts, hmm. nobody has up to this point been curious enough to want to know, well, why was he why? saying four? Yeah, because <laughs> if, if it's, 
you know, if if we're going to collect together all the correct stories of Jesus, what does that have to do with four? Because there are many. Yeah. Interesting. But if Irenaeus, which I believe was following the Jewish wisdom, their metaphor for the journey of transformation was mm. these four parts of these four questions that are ever ongoing. And he laid that down as the basis of the choice of gospel text, because they were looking for the text that was going to give us our journey of transformation through Jesus. And it's, these are We've such, got, I love um, the human questions, you know? Yeah. Yeah. On your website, you, you have this, this little quote. I'm going to read it. It says, on that clear, cold, starry night, an answer arrived that holds a rediscovered paradigm for Christianity. But I believe its significance does not stop there. Quadratos offers a fresh dialogue for world spirituality and indigenous cultures, as well as a new lens on the arts, creativity, psychology, and even science. So you're, you're yep. this is bigger than just re-understanding text and scripture and the Christian transformation. You're, you're, you're envisioning this massive. Could you explain how that offers a fresh well, lens on those things? So, um, so the, the, the piece about the Gospels, for me, comes at the end of a long, mm. long time of, of teaching about forwardness. Yeah. Mm. So after, after I left seminary, I went into education and I eventually became a clinical psychologist. But through all of that, I was tracking that every great spiritual practice indigenous ritual of transformation or initiation and most clinical psychological methods all come down to a four-step method mm. there's this this core that's underneath all of it so for for 20 years i was going everywhere uh, wow. literally europe the united states uh teaching people about this archetype of transformation, this core of transformation, or or change agent yeah. in us, mm -hmm. which has got these four, which has got these four parts, and I can and I could show so clearly show it um, in rites of initiation, and I should so clearly show it in psychological methods, etc. The final piece mm. for me was realizing, oh my, this may be a new way to understand why we ended up with these four Gospels wow. and why they fit together yeah. and how they fit together. Yeah. So I, I already was doing this foreness in science and psychology, uh, in education, uh, in world culture. Interesting. There's like the last and, piece that and came I, together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, and, and then once I saw it in the Gospels, and well, Buddhism, is, the core of Buddhism are the Four Noble Truths. Wow. Each one of those Noble Truths is one of the four parts of the universal journey of transformation. <laughs> Each one of those Noble Truths lines up with the four Gospels. Wow. 
Wow, really? The, the first noble truth of impermanence is another way to say what we talk about in the Gospel of Matthew. How do we face change? change yeah. yeah. The second noble truth of the, the truth of suffering is this is another way to say what we talk about in the Gospel of, of Mark in terms of how do we face tremendous trials and obstacles. Wow. Uh, and on and on and on. So, and of course, that same core is the core of the Exodus story in yeah. Judaism. It's the core of the Shiva and Pavarthi story in Hinduism. It's the core of the Dine Bahane for the Navajo indigenous peoples of the Americas uh, and on and on and on and on and on. Fascinating. So the gospels become, uh, to me, they are, to me, they are the greatest spiritual texts ever written. But the wisdom is shared by the world. Yeah. And, um, and every tradition knows this journey. Every great tradition knows this journey. What I, what I believe is that if a tradition doesn't have all, all the parts, it doesn't last. It's, there's just something in us that uh, instinctively or intuitively knows this isn't the full story. Mm. So it'll it'll live for a short piece and then it'll it'll fade away. Wow. It literally will be more of a fad uh, than a great truth. And so I think I read that it's you see it more as like a circular. Is that right? Like you go through the phases in your life kind of circularly and you kind of circle back up to the first one and go back through. Um, right now. Yeah. Well, it. I mean, there's a macro in, in our in the large lens of our life. We move through those. Yeah. Uh, but in the intimacy of our life, we're in all four places at once, which oh. is where it gets really, hmm. you know, my, my personal life may be in one, my professional life may be in another, my uh, parental yeah. life may be yeah. in a third. <laughs> so it's, but, but if you can track that aspect of your life, it does flow in the sequence. Yeah. Do you think that's true? But it's like, not like our whole life, it's not like our whole life is in just one place. Right, right. that would be kind of oversimplifying probably. Do you think the whole like culture, yeah. history, society moves in the same arcs, same circles? Absolutely. I, well, I, I do. So could and, you point I mean, to... I think... Oh, I'm sorry. Please. Well, I think culturally, right? I think on the planet right now, we are That's what gonna ask. between <laughs> but between the first path, Matthew, how do we face change? Yep. And the anxiety about whether we can actually actually can change. And and then a lot of us are also in that second part, Mark, which is we are looking at the utter chaos as all the, the pillars have fallen. Yes. And it would be so easy in that place to become dejected, despairing, cynical, bitter. Yeah. Uh, and only if you can know the truth of the journey. Yeah. Does it help? Does it help you to stay away from those places? I mean, for me, even as difficult as today is, and it's horribly difficult, these are really culturally the most difficult days I, I've ever experienced. And I thought the days in Birmingham in the 1950s were bad. Wow, that's a statement. Wow, that's but, a big thing, yeah. Well, but I know, oh, okay, we're in the second path. Yeah. 
And I know that the holy hasn't left us. Mm -hmm. And I know that if enough of us, not all of us, but if enough of us do the spiritual practice of the second path, we'll get to the third. I thought the exact same thing when I was reading through the questions and the path. That's the exact thing I thought, like how helpful it is to have these sort of frameworks because then you know that the next steps are coming eventually and you can hold on to that. And and we've seen this before, or we've even personally been through maybe many versions of this in our own personal lives. And to know that, you know, that, the third and fourth steps are coming. It's helpful. Well, they are. It's like, I don't want to be naive and I don't want to be Pollyanna. I mean, yeah. right now is painful it's as hard. anything. It, it's hard. It's painful. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's not the end. Yeah. And it's not the whole story. So for and instance. One of the things that, 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 the, that Matthew and Mark teach because they use the Jewish metaphors of darkness, mm. but but they use the Jewish metaphor of darkness to know that when you're in a dark time, this is the beginning. This is not darkness is not how things end. Darkness is how things begin. Yeah. And the 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 chaos and the upheaval that we're in right now is not the ending. It's the beginning. Mm. Right. That was the exact question I was going to ask you is how, how, you know, can we draw on the text in our seasons that we're in to, you know, find that grounding? Um, you mentioned spiritual practice of Matthew, the spiritual yeah. practice of Mark. And you said if enough of us practice that spiritual practice of Mark, it'll move us through it. Can you define what those practices are of each of these quadrants or even how we can lean into those things? Um, it, when we look at Matthew, Matthew has got the practices sort of a, in, in a not quite code, but you have to sort of tease them out. Mm. Um, like the beginning of Matthew is this long uh, in what I, I mean, as somebody who would read at church, the last thing I want to do is read Matthew's genealogy. Right. <laughs> all, of, all of those, all of those men's names and all of those begots. But what, but there are five points in that genealogy, which are very, which are very strange and it's where five women are named yes. Four, four are named the, 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 the fifth is where David is named. Um, that genealogy is giving us the spiritual practice when everything starts tumbling down. I want you to read the story of your heroes, mm. read the stories of, of whoever your family heroes, heroines, the mystics, the saints, maybe maybe your favorite athletic player, mm. whoever faced tough times and endured through it. Mm. Because uh, you need to, the Matthew is that place where we need to know that everybody who's gone before us has had difficult moments. And the question is how we're going to face them. It's not that they've come to us, they come to all of us, but how are you going to face them? And who are the hero and heroines who have gone before or that we personally know who give us the inspiration and the hope to walk through the door? 
not not to shut down, not to deny, not to walk away from, but say, I can do this. And the the other one of the other great well, the, I also love that that Matthew was. Uh, the gospel that gives us the passage about um, the the law and the prophets tell you, but now I say, mm -hmm. and and that whole section is about the fact that when we're in a Matthew moment where everything is tumbling, don't reach for the door handles, uh, in the sense that you're not going to know. Actually, this moment in your life is going about living into unlearning. The learning is unlearning. Because nobody quite understood what Jesus was saying when he said, the law and the prophets have said, but now I say to you, and I'm like, huh? The total what? Shifting unlearning, absolutely. But Jesus is inviting us into a journey to discover that what we thought was true yesterday is actually true, but we're going to uh, learn that it's a truth in a very different way, a wider way, a deeper way, a more vital way. But, but we don't go from learning to learning. We go from learning yeah. to unlearning right. Absolutely. to new learning. Yeah, which is the worst. <laughs> that, well, was, that one part where you did, so the, you know. The Christian tradition has a difficult that, time with this as well. That following and like, knowing part. There's an institutional self-preservation in the tradition that does not like unlearning because it threatens the power right. structures of those who hold the reins, you know? So there's this gutsy meditation that Matthew asks us to, to do, and but asks us to do it with the presence of God or Jesus, whoever that that uh, wisdom presence is in our life. And it's right there uh, at the arrest scene in Gethsemane, where right at that moment, Matthew tells us, Jesus says to the disciples, look, the betrayer is at hand. And then immediately the betrayer comes and Jesus greets that moment with friend, mm -hmm. do what you have come to do. So this is the great practice of the first path is can you, with the presence of a reality greater than yourself, face what's going on and say, friend, do what you've come to do. Oh. This is not that That's we good. like it. This good. is not that we're going to say, oh, I just love doing this. Um, this is not a court of law about who's right or wrong. Um, this is about no matter what's happened, we can walk into that moment with another reality by our side and face it. Surrender. And we can realize that that moment is for our growth. As unjust as that moment may be, how it arose. We can't get into that spiritually at this moment. This moment is about our growth. And there's a reality that can help us grow through it. That made the hair on the back and of my we'll neck stand we'll, out. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why the, the story of, of Jesus's trial and, and, and crucifixion in Matthew, 
brings forward all the notes of betrayal. Yeah. Not just to tell us about what happened in those days, but because when you're on the first path, when you're wrestling with facing change, the, the emotion that will stop you the fastest is either getting into the victimhood of I have been betrayed by somebody, it shouldn't have been this way, somebody else did me wrong, you know, da, da, da. again, this is not a court of law, we're not going to go into the right or right. wrongness of that. Or I get into feeling like I was the betrayer. In both of those instances, if you collapse into that, you'll stop the spiritual growth journey. You've, you've got to invite a reality greater than yourself to be with you and to say, all right, I'm going to face this moment. I'm going to face these difficult feelings. I'm going to face what's happened. And through another power besides just my own ego, mm -hmm we're going to move, we're going to move through this. Wow. That's so good. Yes. It's like a, um, it's, it's a missing wisdom. I think that so many people need right now. So many collapse into that space. It's, it's like almost impossible not to, if there is, I mean, you need the greater spirit and power of and that's yeah. why i think i mean it's the beauty that matthew gives us um the two figures of peter and judas and i don't think that those figures it's like he doesn't give give us those figures because he wants us to point back to history he, he wants us to recognize that each of us has a peter and each of us has a judas and what did peter forgot went to sleep denied turned away yeah woke woke up and started again hmm. judas did nothing different than what peter did but he fell into despair and stopped the journey wow and and that's the great lesson i think that the text is giving us in this moment of change yeah, you're going to fall asleep. Yeah, you're not going to do it perfectly. Yeah, you're going to, whatever your metaphor is for <laughs> not doing it perfectly. Um, are, are you going to wake up and start again? Are you going to wake up and start again? Well, it's a picture of death and resurrection in a way. Falling asleep and waking back up. Okay, do Mark. That was amazing. <laughs> do Mark. <laughs> <laughs> What are the practices of Mark? I love it. Oh. Wait, can right, I ask so one more Mark? question? Personally, about this. <laughs> this is this is your podcast. <laughs> I'm just interested. Is there anything you're because I understand the practices that you're saying, but is there anything that helps you to move that you do to kind of move into that surrender place or to oh, move good. into besides kind of looking to the people before you? which I think it's interesting that you said that because I think people are naturally doing that right now, like leaning into the mystics and leaning into who, you know, people reading things like, um, what's that book? The Concentration Camp, we never remember the name. Anyway, <laughs> people are doing that, I think, intuitively right now, but what, is there anything that you yeah. personally do to kind of move into that space? Uh, 
Yes, I do a meditation where I invite and see Jesus, the Christ, Spirit, God, who whatever your image is, sitting with you, mm. holding your hand, embracing you, what, whatever it is. There, there, do not try to do this by yourself. So that's the internal meditation. And the external meditation is, um, or the external practice is at least one good friend. That's so two good. or three. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, two Thank or three you. is quite we, a bit. We need, we, I mean, we, we need God with flesh on. Yeah. But we also need to understand not everybody, it, it, it you, you, you need a person who knows how to listen. You need a person who has been through their own deep transformation. Journey. Yes, there's very few that you could call on like that. Yeah, it's, that's right. That's right. Okay, sorry. Like, there, there are a lot of people that you can go to the movies with or go to. <laughs> go, yeah, go to yeah, movies. have very a good time different. with. You know, I have four. Those people who know how to walk with you through the the really difficult inner places. I have four. There was, a, was the last, there was like a year that I would call each of them every day, or they would call me every day and walk me through my own season, just like you're describing. A whole year. Yeah. And it was incredible. Yeah. It was like one long conversation that never stopped, you know? Okay, do Mark. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah, that was fantastic. <laughs> really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> what, what's the spiritual practice of Mark? I love this. So um, I, I love how the way Mark opens. Well, I don't love it, but it's it's so true that Mark opens by giving us the figure of John the Baptist. Mm. And uh, the Christian community that's hearing this story have been wrongly accused by Nero of having set the great city of Rome on fire. Mm they understand that they are John the Baptist. Hmm. And so one of the things, one of the, the, the practices, one of the wisdom pieces to know when we're in the second path is we are going to feel the wrongness of this moment. We are going to feel at every, this is not how it should be. Hmm. Uh, I've been a good enough person, and this is the that my life is in now. And we're going to hear that voice, like, where is God? We're going to feel abandoned. And so the, 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 the practices in Mark, which are similar, really, to the practices in Matthew about making sure that you come back and keep yourself interiorly rooted in an experience of God with you. Hmm. And that you've got those outer couple of people who can walk with you. But to know, to constantly remember that this path is going to try to give you every form of delusion. It's going to try you try to get you to believe the lie hmm. that you're bad that you did something that made God go away or that God has gone away and God's angry with you. 
And none of that is true. What is true is, is that uh, you have gone from learning to unlearning. And in this new place, you are actually with God. But God's cleaning out the furniture. And I wish the moving crew was more gentle, but it's usually not. It's like cognitive thoughts and emotions are being cleared out. And we feel the aloneness, the isolation, and the emptiness. And it's really hard for us on this path to feel presence with us. Mm -hmm. And so one of my practices is to remember that my thought that nobody else can understand and that God mm. isn't here is actually the lie. Yeah, that's good. But I know the feeling. The feeling is true. But the feeling wants to lead us to despair or cynicism or bitterness. Whereas God wants us to hold the feeling long enough until a new reality arrives. Come on, that's good. So one of the greatest passages in Mark is the first crossing of the storm, crossing of the sea at night, where Jesus has put the disciples in the boat at nighttime. Well, if you know anything about the Sea of Galilee, and if you know about people who fished in those days, nobody in their right mind goes <laughs> out on that sea at nighttime. That's a death sentence. Oh, yeah. Because the storms on those sea come up violently. And at nighttime, you can't see them and you are going to likely drown. God puts us in this boat at night and sends us through the storm. And when we're praying for, for the storm to be taken away, God is saying, oh, no, I want you to go through it, but I don't want you to go through it alone. I'm here. And that's the beauty of that passage is that it's one of my all-time favorite passages because in Mark, Jesus is asleep. Where's Jesus asleep? In the back of the boat. Mm -hmm. the storm. Yeah, yeah. What's the cushy place? The back of the boat. <laughs> and if that's not enough, he tells us that Jesus has got a pillow. He's got, <laughs> we're in a storm and Jesus has got a pillow. And asleep. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. It's like he's got his Linus blanket. Um, <laughs> and 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 so you hear Peter screaming out in pain as we all do. Wake the up! Yeah, we're going yeah. down, and you don't care. Yeah. And and I love the image that Jesus wakes and calms the storm. But I think really what Jesus is doing is calming the storm inside of us. And and says, literally, I'm here. Where is your faith? So this is the, this, this mark is so much the story of the Hebrews cro crossing the wilderness. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we think that God has abandoned us because we can't see what God is actually doing in us and for us yet. Mm. Oh, I love love but it's so true 
that in Mark, Jesus prays Psalm 22 from the cross. And if we had stayed closer to our mother tradition, Judaism, we would know that Psalm 22 was the expected uh, prayer to be on your lips as you die. Every Jewish person mm. spent their whole life wanting to have the, the words of Psalm 22 on their lips. Mm. So when Jesus on the cross in Mark cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not just a statement. It's, it's he's giving Psalm 22. The evangelist probably didn't need to give us the entire text of Psalm 22 because everybody in those days knew exactly what right. was happening. Right. Jesus was praying as a devout Jew as he dies, Psalm 22, which is a journey psalm, which starts with all the rawness that we all feel when we're in this place and moves through it to the end of the psalm, which is a song of praise to the God who has always been. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's the journey of Mark is in no way to say that the pain is a delusion. It's real and it hurts, but it's not the end of the journey. Gosh, I love it. And that actually, even in this moment, I still might know praise. Mm. Thank you for breaking it down like that. Yeah, so helpful. So, I mean, those are the two big stages of where we all are and to have practices that can carry us through them is incredible can i ask you a bigger question wait you're gonna say something well i just well yeah it was just let me summarize that by in in the second path in mark we want to feel our feelings but we don't want to collapse into them mm. I was we just, want that's to so have good. them we want to have them without they having us mm. And, and we want to know that they're true, but they're not the whole story. We've been talking a lot about um, allowing emotions to like feel our feelings and then allow emotions to move through us. And, um, but like actually sitting in something long enough to let it do the work in you that needs to be done. But where's that line between letting it sit and do the work that needs to be done and then letting it collapse in on itself? Um, when, whenever you move to cynicism or bitterness, mm. brittleness, um, you've collapsed into it rather than, rather than breathing with it. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's what good do you do then when you feel breathe, that? Breathe with it. You breathe with it. Breathe with it. Mm. <laughs> now I used to, many years ago, many decades ago now, I used to be a hospital chaplain you get those two, three a.m. calls to go and be with someone who's just, and why is the pain always greatest in those early morning hours? Always mm -hmm. around two and three a.m. Those are the times that I've woken up and felt the most pain. Two and three a.m. And, and as a chaplain, we're taught to go in and to help the person breathe with the pain. It doesn't take it away. But if we will relax and move with it rather than becoming rigid. Mm -hmm. Rigidity increases it. And it's the same thing with our emotions. Mm. Beautiful. 
and also those good friends who will continually say to you, I, I know this hurts, but it's not the end of the story. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to ask you a bigger question. <laughs> um, you so beautifully, so like versus unlearning and then new learning, and you so beautifully have navigated these scriptural texts and in a way even rearranged them and seen these deeper themes within them and connected them to the broader wisdom traditions. It just like rearranged in terms of how you're reading them and the flow of the transformational process. Like how do you, on a bigger picture, and I, I don't even know if the question makes sense, but like in your own sort of words or view, how are you holding these these texts that bring you such life? Because the people hold it in ways that does not bring life, and then there's ways that bring so much life. So how are you holding these texts? Like in your own mind, how are you envisioning the way that you're holding it that's bringing such life? But then and I'll, I'll, I'll frame that with, there's so much weaponization of the text that I've seen that it's causing so many to just reject the thing altogether rather than to hold it in a fresh way that brings such great life. And that's why I ask. So I, I may not be the best person to answer this because um, I come out of a indigenous Lebanese tradition, which knows that there is a presence between the words. Mm -hmm. the, the, the words are the, the doorway or might even say the costuming to a deeper presence. And that deeper presence is a presence of love and comfort and wisdom. And uh, so I'm, I, I have the gift of looking at these texts as the journey and seeing through what I think of as the not helpful Western translations of the text and being able to see into them the Aramaic, which was about a living presence that was both and, not either or. And um, so I, it's easy for me to love these texts because I have a very different frame on them. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, it, 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 it hurts me because I know how much these words have hurt others. Mm. And it's not true. I mean, it's not true that when, when the Aramaic was translated into the Greek, the Aramaic language is about wholeness. It's about both and. It's about a living presence in the body. And the, and the Greek language of the first century was the language of oppression. It was about either or. It was about hierarchy. It was about who's in and who's out. Um, and I know, I, I believe I know, that the translators were trying to use Greek concepts to deconstruct the Greek world. Hmm. But today, we look back at the Greek. Many of our scholars look back at the Greek and sort of idolize the Greek. Mm -hmm. 
and yeah. think it think that the Greek language was some paragon of virtue. The Absolutely. Greek language of the first century was the language of oppression. It was the language that said that light must defeat dark, that men must overpower women, that heaven must win over earth. Um, everything in the Greek world of the first century was about competing opposites. Mm. And there was a right opposite and a wrong opposite. And your work was to align with the right of the two pairs. So spirit must defeat matter. Mm. Heaven must defeat earth. Men must defeat women. Light must defeat darkness. That's not the Aramaic Greek world at all. Light and dark are both holy. Mm -hmm. Men and women are both holy. Mm -hmm. Heaven and earth are complementary realities. And on and on and on. Wow. So you just, yeah. Yeah. It's wild how it's transferred all the way to today, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that yeah. many years ago. But in language has power and the way things are translated, that makes so much sense. Um, we've been asking every, all everyone oops, in our conversations this question, but what is giving you hope right now? What I, what I wrestle with is uh, how to say this. Mm. Uh, I, I'm not a person of hope. Uh, I know the journey. Mm. I know that for all of us, a third path is going to come out of the second path. I don't know when. I don't know how. Mm. Um, my my work is to just do the best I can with what I've been given and leave the rest to God. Mm. But we are on a profound, large, planet-wide first and second path. And if enough of us, which I think enough of us will, if enough of us stay on the journey, the third path will come in the same way it's always come. By tremendous surprise, so that we think it's a miracle. Beautiful. I appreciate the. That's, I mean, you know, the, the thing is, whenever the third path arrives, you can never predict it. It always seems like a miraculous event. Mm. It's like, where did it come from, and how did it get here? It's like it's it's. It like a resurrection it, it really does feel that way and you think whoa I, i'm alive again i don't understand yeah yeah i didn't see it coming i don't even know when it happened but here i am i'm feeling alive again absolutely in five minutes before we couldn't have predicted it <laughs> uh, yes you're right and what happens for each of us will also happen for us culturally and planet-wise Right. I just don't know. Too. Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be five years from now? Is it going to be 50 years? I don't know. Yeah. But it's God's here. That we just have to keep doing our work. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for, for joining us. Thank you for sharing your heart and your story and your incredibly hard-earned wisdom and experience with us. Um, this, I'd love it. 
Where can people... Thank you for the invitation. Oh, yeah, of course. Thanks so much for your time. You, I mean, I'm going to be, I'm going to be thinking about this for a while. This was so good. Just, we keep saying how this podcast is for us. Like, <laughs> like we just love talking to people and we get so much from it. Um, where can people find you, find your work, find your books? So, uh, please go to my website. There's all sorts of yummy stuff there. Yes. Uh, and it is Q U A D quad Q U A D R A. TOS.com, quadratus.com. And uh, my books are on Amazon. My books are available through, uh, through the website. Uh, we have a hardback edition, which is called Radical Transformation. And we have a softback, a paperback, and a Kindle edition, which is called Heart and Mind. Okay. Um, same, same text same in text. every okay. edition, even same pagination in every edition. Okay. It's just uh, after, after we heard from so many people, which I'm grateful, that Heart and Mind, the book had become so used, it was falling apart. Mm. And so we, uh, uh, two years ago, we produced the hardback editions, which to What a great problem. <laughs> yeah, truly, truly. Awesome. Okay, well, we'll put all that in the show notes. And thank you so much, really. Oh, you're welcome. Time. Welcome. Go have a brilliant summer. Ah, you too. <laughs> and, and, I, and I hope a bit cool and that the fire danger will, will stay less. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to check out our website, philandjenwood.com, for coaching, resources, and events. And if you enjoyed this, feel free to subscribe. You can even leave a review. Keep going. See you next time.